Good afternoon. Welcome to the Betsy and Wally Stern Policy Center. I'm John Walters, Chief Operating Officer at Hudson. Uh, I am proud to host, uh, proud on behalf of Hudson to host this discussion of one of the most important and dangerous topics facing uh, our country and the world, that is, how to prevent other countries and terrorists from obtaining nuclear weapons. The Korean nuclear program, Iran's nuclear aspirations, nihilist terrorism presents Americans with unprecedented dangers and presents all the world with those, with those threats. In a September 19 address to the UN General Assembly, President Trump affirmed U.S. leadership against the proliferation of nuclear weapons and other weapons of mass destruction. These comments built on the President's August 21st speech on the new U.S. security for, new U.S. strategy for Afghanistan and South Asia in which he declared that the United States must prevent nuclear weapons and materials from coming into the hands of terrorists and from being used against us anywhere in the world. Hudson has recently launched a new project funded by the John D. and Catherine T. MacArthur Foundation on sustaining bipartisanship, bipartisan U.S. leadership against nuclear terrorism. My colleague, Richard Weitz, who will speak at a moment, is leading this effort with others here. This program intends to build an enduring foundation for inclusive U.S. global leadership regarding nuclear security. It would aim to expand domestic political consensus from both sides of the aisle of U.S. policy for U.S. policies designed to counter nuclear terrorism, especially by strengthening fissile materials security. Dr. Christopher Ford is Special Assistant to the President and Senior Director for Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counter Proliferation on the National Security Council. He's also a friend, so it's a particular pleasure to introduce him today in this program. He will discuss the Trump administration's integrated strategy for countering WMD terrorism, averting nuclear proliferation, and enhancing global security. Mr. Ford is a graduate of Harvard College, Oxford University as a Rhodes Scholar, and Yale Law School. Chris previously worked on Capitol Hill in several positions, including Chief Legislative Counsel for the U.S. Senate Committee on Foreign Relations. Before that, he served uh, the executive branch as U.S. Special Representative for Nuclear Nonproliferation. As Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State for Arms Control, Nonproliferation, Disarmament, Ver Verification, and Compliance Policy uh, as well. He also is a, res was a, res is a Reserve Intelligence Officer with the U.S. Navy. He served this country for many years in many positions on this important matter. We could not have a better speaker to kick off the first of, of uh, this program. Most importantly, finally, but not least, from 2008 to 2013, Chris was a former senior fellow at Hudson Institute where he directed our Center for Technology and Global Security. At Hudson, among his projects, he wrote a pioneering study on Chinese foreign policy and a report on what preconditions would be needed preconditions would be needed to achieve a nuclear-free world. Please join me in welcoming first uh, Richard Weitz, who's going to uh, um, just explain the structure of the program, and then uh, Dr. Ford. Thank you. Let me uh, join John in welcoming everyone to our event. Uh, the United States faces two major nuclear security challenges uh, presently. The first is sustaining bipartisan U.S. leadership and tension to nuclear security issues despite other domestic divisions. And the second is promoting international security uh, cooperation on, on nuclear issues, 
even as countries differ sometimes greatly on other security questions. Uh, I'd be pleased to tell you more about how both the, the MacArthur programs we're working uh, with uh, will help address these, these challenges. Um, and I think we, we, we can agree we've been fortunate and in previous U.S. administrations have made substantial progress in this area. And now my well-respected former colleague, Chris Forbes, will tell us how the Trump administration will build on these achievements in coming years. Unfortunately, uh, Chris will have to depart immediately after his remarks. We ask that the audience remain seated until he leaves the auditorium. Thank you. Thank you very much. They tell me that I am mic'd without having to speak into one, so I hope that actually works. Thank you for the kind introduction, Richard. Thank you, John. Uh, it is a very great pleasure to be back here at Hudson, where I did indeed spend several very enjoyable years thinking and writing about a range of issues, including in this area. Uh, and I am very pleased to see the faces of some old colleagues and friends uh, around the building here today as I've just come in. The topic for today is, of course, nuclear security. And as the fellow in charge of the Weapons of Mass Destruction and Counterproliferation Directorate at the NSC, let me begin by congratulating you, Richard and Hudson, uh, for this uh, MacArthur Foundation grant that you've gotten to do work on preventing terrorists from obtaining nuclear weapons, materials, or technologies. The importance of that topic pretty much explains itself, of course, and I'm delighted to see that additional work is being done in the field. And it is great to hear that part of this project, as I understand it, I had the great pleasure a few minutes ago of meeting some of your, your uh, the, the young participants in this program. Uh, it's great to see that you're spending so much time and effort to train the next generation of nuclear security experts because it's upon them that our society will depend in the years ahead to ensure that no such catastrophe ever occurs. Not just not on my watch, as it were, but never. As my old Navy comrades in arms would say, bravo Zulu for that. So as I hope these warm congratulations will signal to you, nuclear security is a very high priority for the new administration. Within the NSC staff, it is a very high priority for my directorate. And indeed, it is one of our core missions. And fortunately also, it is one for which there exists strong and enduring bipartisan support in the policy community in the United States. In different administrations, this support can take slightly different forms over time, and sometimes does, but over the years, it has been gratifying to see that support for nuclear and radiological security remains strong. My directorate deals with a number of issues that have pretty strong political valences, valences and on which the two US political parties sometimes take different positions that can make policymaking rather contentious over time. Arms control and disarmament, for example, um, are among those politically fraught areas, as is US policy on North Korean missile and nuclear proliferation. Another politically challenging one, as you might have noticed, especially of late, relates to Iran and the so-called Joint Comprehensive Plan of Action nuclear deal with Tehran. It's those kinds of live wire political issues about which you tend to see a steady drumbeat of stories in the press and about which think tankers and academics tend to raise voices at each other in fora such as this. And it's in that area, in those areas, I should say, that US policy can sometimes seesaw to a degree back and forth as administrations change. Fortunately, nuclear security and the absolute imperative of making sure that terrorists never acquire or use nuclear weaponry, for example, is not one of those charged issues. To the contrary, it has been and it remains a transcendently obvious thing to policymakers across the political spectrum how important it is to do that. I can assure you that it remains very and critically important to us in the current administration to prevent and disrupt WMD terrorism efforts, to enhance nuclear security, to prevent chemical weapons use, and of course to prevent proliferation of all sorts. 
Not a lot of the senior people in our new team came into office with extensive experience on these issues, but they've caught on very quickly. Unfortunately, they have had to. Chemical weapons use, for instance, is already routine in the Middle East, including by non-state actors. Daesh, the terrorists of the so-called Islamic State, have frequently, regularly used chemical agents such as sulfur mustard against their opponents on the battlefield in Syria and Iraq. And they are clearly eager to acquire such new capabilities as they can. Despite the Russian choreographed charade of the Assad regime in Syria pretending to relinquish its chemical weapons stockpile in 2013 and 14, moreover, it has now long since become clear that Syria retained a significant chemical weapons capacity, a capacity that it has subsequently used to horrific effect, such as with the nerve agent attack upon Khan Sheikhoun on April 4 of this year. The regime has also continued with chlorine gas attacks. Tragically, the Middle East is no stranger to chemical weapons usage. With a long history of such problems that has included Egyptian use during the civil war in Yemen in the 1960s, Syrian use against the Muslim Brotherhood at Hama in 1982, an orgy of chemical killing during the Iran-Iraq war in the late 1980s, and Saddam Hussein's use of chemical weapons against restive Kurds in 1988. One might have hoped that such periodic usages would disappear with the entry into force of the Chemical Weapons Convention in 1997, of course, but that has not happened, and the Middle East remains afflicted. With there no longer being any even pretense of a norm against chemical weapons usage in the Middle East these days, and with ISIS actively looking for ever more potent tools to use in its own attacks, even while we work with our allies and partners to extinguish the territorial existence of their blasphemously pretentious and presumptuous caliphate, it is more important than ever to prevent such murderous enthusiasms from ever having access to nuclear weaponry. We have to remain flexible and vigilant and use all of the tools at our disposal to prevent the acquisition, proliferation, or use of WMD by any actor, for as we know, there are both state and non-state actors that do seek to develop, acquire, or improve their WMD capabilities. Some may want such tools for deterrence while others may wish to use them or believe that their use would be advantageous in certain circumstances. This administration is determined to deter or prevent WMD use of any kind and is well aware that the use of WMD by any actor lowers the threshold for those who may follow. This administration came to focus especially acutely upon these problems last spring with the Syrian atrocity at Khan Sheikhoun, to which I've already alluded, an atrocity which so moved and appalled the president that he immediately chose to lay down a potent marker against such acts by unleashing an attack with 59 Tomahawk missiles to destroy the Syrian airbase from which that nerve agent assault had been mounted. To make clear that his attention has not flagged and that he fully recognizes the dangers presented by terrorist interest in increasingly powerful WMD tools, the president has also declared, as he said last August, that we must prevent nuclear weapons and materials from coming into the hands of terrorists and being used against us or anywhere in the world. Accordingly, we are proud to be the latest in a long string of administrations to commit ourselves to keeping weapons of mass destruction out of the hands of terrorists. The challenge now is to turn our commitment and the expressed commitment of many other international partners into concrete actions. As part of the nuclear security summit process during the previous administration, the United States and our partners made many such commitments, some of which have now been codified in IAEA information circulars, or INFSERCs. We must keep up that momentum and transition the high-profile process of summit-based promise-making into a real-world process of implementation and tangible progress. The international community faces real challenges in keeping nuclear weapons, materials, and technology out of the hands of non-state actors as a result of certain modern trends. We are seeing, for instance, 
and expansion of nuclear weapons and materials in South Asia, which could create additional complexities in maintaining control over those weapons and those materials. Additionally, Russia's withdrawal from almost all aspects of bilateral cooperation in securing nuclear material could result in a reduction in security at certain facilities within Russia's vast and expansive nuclear complex. Moscow will need to commit significant financial and human resources to maintain adequate security within its nuclear infrastructure, but this is not always an issue that Russia has prioritized. With the Russians today hard at work building new nuclear weapons and new delivery systems, as well as new types of weapons and delivery system, and once more expanding their infrastructure, these challenges may become still more acute in the years ahead. Another worrying trend is the increasing availability of technology and information on how to produce, manufacture, assemble, and use weapons of mass destruction. Modern information technology enables state actors and terrorists alike to access useful information in this respect, while the rapid advancement of biotechnology, particularly that associated with genome editing and synthesis technologies, creates new risks of malign use or devastating accident from technologies that are increasingly available worldwide. Whether with respect to nuclear power and radiological medicine, the many fruits of the chemical industry or the miracles of modern biology, some of the technologies that help make modern life as rich and wonderful as it is also have potential Janus-faced aspects and potential side effects. It is our challenge, therefore, to build the habits, the rules, the institutions that prevent these technologies being leveraged for destructive purposes, even while still allowing us to take advantage of their enormous potential for good. And in this respect, there is a lot of work ahead of us. Although participation by the international community in efforts to curb proliferation has expanded, for example, rigorous enforcement of UN Security Council resolutions and robust application of control regimes remains a significant challenge. Many countries still lack adequate controls, adequate domestic laws, and bureaucratic capacity to do this work properly, while some countries look the other way, willfully, when proliferation facilitating transactions occur. We do have sound international rules, institutions, partnerships, and capabilities in many respects, but successfully stemming the proliferation of sensitive technologies requires constant vigilance, active honing of these mechanisms, a degree of capacity building assistance in many cases, and political level follow through once commitments have been undertaken. It requires other countries not only to take action, but also, and this is important, to routinize such behavior. They need, one might say, to make right action into a habit. Now that's the supply side, but there's also a demand side. And this is part of why it's so important to take resolute steps as well, to hold entities accountable for WMD use and to deter or dissuade future use. Every time chemical, biological, radiological, or nuclear weapons are used or are perceived to have given their users some kind of tactical or strategic benefit, it becomes that much harder to control proliferation in the future. And this is where our own preparedness and response capacities can become particularly important, not just for the benefit they provide, of course, in mitigating the damage should we fail to prevent WMD use, but also for the role that they can play in deterring use in the first place, because such attacks will be attractive to terrorists only in proportion to their actual ability to cause catastrophic harm. So preparedness is also part of the mix. It does not merely save lives in the event of attack. It also helps deter such attacks. Now, bearing all this in mind, we in the administration have recently completed an assessment of our approaches to nuclear security in order to ensure that they address these challenges. We are not yet in a position to roll out all of this strategy publicly. Perhaps this will be something that you can engage with further in this, in this forum. But we are pleased with the results, and I am confident that you will be pleased that nuclear security remains a, a focus of great attention. In keeping with the President's America First approach to foreign policy, we are committed to protecting the homeland and the welfare and interests of the American people. 
both at home and abroad. But this is no crude isolationism, for we recognize that the terrorist threat exists in a global network and that sensitive nuclear or radiological materials acquired anywhere could be used against U.S. interests either at home or abroad. And this makes the security of such materials worldwide. An important, <coughs> excuse me, the security of such materials worldwide, a key to the prevention of WMD terrorism. In order to prevent their acquisition by terrorists, we are working domestically, bilaterally, multilaterally with our foreign partners and with industry and the private sector as well to eliminate or minimize the nuclear and radiological materials that are of the greatest concern, to locate and re-secure material that is already out of state control, and to improve the security of those materials that we simply cannot eliminate. Partnerships are critical to our success in doing this and to sustaining this strategy over the longer term because fundamentally the responsibility for the security of sensitive materials must lie with the countries that own them. We must build a shared vision of the threat of nuclear and radiological terrorism, help build capacity in the countries that retain those materials, and we must work with other states and international organizations and other partners to spread a culture of security that continues to adapt as technologies and threats change over time. We will partner with industry and the private sector, including universities and non-governmental organizations, to help develop innovative solutions that will supplement and will enhance global nuclear and radiological security. But it's not just about them, it is also about us. Even here in the United States, we must eliminate excess material, nuclear and radioactive material, and we must shrink the domestic inventories of such materials that exist. We must make certain that what remains is adequately secured and ensure that detection and response capabilities effectively leverage all the available tools and talents, including in the law enforcement community. So, while discussion of the specific details of our strategy will have to await another day, let me assure you that the end of the nuclear security summit process signifies no lessening of United States attention and priority to nuclear security. Instead, it signifies our focus upon transitioning global nuclear security and radiological security efforts into what we hope it will remain over the long term, an axiomatically important, enduring priority for the policy community, the key tasks of which have become regularized, routinized, and systematized, no longer something novel or unusual, but rather part of the bread and butter work and the persistent day-to-day -day attention of the policy community at the international, state, and private sector levels and in civil society as well. We need sharp and sustained attention to these issues to become part of the international community's new normal from here henceforth. In doing all this, as I indicated, Partnerships with the broader policy community, including with civil society organizations and think tanks, are an important ingredient for success. And so as we move forward, and as you here at Hudson embark upon your own project in nuclear security, I look forward to ensuring that our experts have the chance to work and interact with you on these matters. And I look forward to seeing your efforts bear fruit in helping produce tomorrow's nuclear security experts, the people that we need in order to make progress on this critical endeavor, not just in the weeks and months ahead, but in the years and decades ahead. So thanks for having me, and I do apologize for not being able to have more of a conversation uh, with you about this, but it has been a pleasure to be here and to see so many friendly faces, and I wish you Godspeed in your endeavors and, uh, and the greatest of success. Thanks for having me.